this shouldn't be happening, plain and simple. And especially after the first wave, there were lessons learned. Well, you'd think there were lessons learned, but clearly there weren't learned by the people running these facilities because as we learned in the case of Sunnycrest uh, and Tender Care, where ministry inspectors went in within the last couple of weeks, um, we hear the same thing. These are preventable infection prevention and control mistakes that happened that led to these outbreaks. I mean, this is negligence. Welcome to the Amber Mack Show. I'm Amber Mack. And that was Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos at a protest on December 29th at Tender Care Living Centre in Scarborough, Ontario. I attended this protest along with dozens of people, including family members with loved ones, still inside this long-term care facility, where as of January 2nd, 2021, 60 seniors have lost their lives during a COVID-19 outbreak that is still spiraling out of control. As you know, I'm usually reporting on the latest technology trends. But nothing has stopped me in my tracks, like watching what we're doing to the men and women who raised us, supported us, and made sacrifices for us. Although I have no direct connection to the dozens of long-term care facilities struggling to keep residents alive, I grew up in a place enduring a time where my grandparents meant the world to me. I now live in a place enduring a time where ageism is rampant, and years of elder neglect is wreaking havoc during this pandemic. To explain more about how we got here and what we can do about it is Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health, among other notable titles. I first asked him how well this country protects our oldest citizens. If we think about how Canada cares for seniors, we don't really score incredibly well. If you actually look at the international stage right now, Canada's a big underspender when it comes to the provision of what we call long-term care. And long-term care, we think about it as that mix of home and community care services to services that we provide in nursing homes as well. And when you actually look at Canada overall, we spend about 30% less than other OECD countries. So what I like to call the rich countries club. And we spend about half of our GDP that countries like Denmark do on supporting people to to you know, live, uh, live um, in the communities where they need to, especially when they have long-term care needs. And the problem there is as well, is that when you look at how Canada actually spends the few dollars it actually does invest in the provision of long-term care, the vast majority of it, about 87 cents on the dollar is spent on warehousing older adults, if you will, in long-term care homes, for example, rather than caring for them in their own homes in the community where they often want to be. And we know that this often is a much more expensive and less effective way of caring for people. And because we spend a lot less than other countries, we end up cutting corners. And we've been doing this for decades when we never included long-term care in our Canada Health Act. So this means that we end up spending less on staffing and we actually end up having poor quality facilities, which all become an absolute nightmare scenario when you actually have a pandemic. It is incredibly sad to think about what's happened during 2020 with our long-term care homes here in Ontario. I was just reading in the Toronto Star that there are more than 2,700 residents uh, who have died and eight staff members. Can you talk a little bit about how that compares relative to other countries during COVID-19? 
Well, Canada earned the dubious distinction early on in this pandemic by the first wave of actually having the highest rate of its deaths occurring in its long-term care homes compared to any other country. So when you actually look at the global average, it's been around 40% of the deaths uh, from COVID have occurred in these settings, but Canada really stood out, upwards of 80% of its deaths occurring in these settings. And that really speaks a lot as to why Canada is an outlier. Uh, When you actually think about the vast majority, over 95% of the people who died have been seniors, it really reflects the fact that, first of all, COVID-19 is something that is that very much targets older adults, uh, and that really has devastating consequences for them in particular. But when the majority of the deaths that are occurring are much more likely to happen in long-term care homes, rather than the eight plus million seniors who are living out in their own homes and communities, it really tells you that there's something wrong with the settings in which they're living. Because we did a study back in July that actually did an international comparison showing that older adults, uh, older Canadians living in long-term care settings had a 74-fold greater chance of dying from COVID than older adults living in their own homes and communities across Canada. It is startling to think about uh, this reality that we're in right now. And, and I think what's even harder to understand and accept is that we should have learned a lot during this first wave. And I think perhaps we can find a bit of forgiveness in terms of what took place. But now that we're in the second wave, how have we made the same mistakes again? Well, I think it really it really speaks to a lot of inaction that's just simply occurred. And I think partly it, it reflects societal ageism. If these were children that were dying, if the Toronto Star today basically said that 2,700 children have died, there would be protests on the streets. Uh, people would just have been um, absolutely devastated. We would never have let that actually even get to this extent. But when it's our seniors, when it's older people who are often in these homes majority of them having dementia, can't speak for themselves. All of these deaths are occurring behind closed walls with people that many of us can't relate to. It's almost as if we've allowed this population to take a toll that we would never have allowed on a younger generation or a younger population to occur. And I think that's the greatest tragedy because absolutely, when you think about the first wave, at the very beginning, we didn't know a huge amount about COVID. We knew that it was something that had a predilection for older people. Uh, We started realizing very quickly when the first outbreaks that uh, started to occur in BC's homes. But By the end of March, actually, we actually had the knowledge of what we needed to do. And provinces like BC that actually followed the science implemented really key measures to stabilize their staffing, uh, to make sure that staff working in these homes actually had adequate PPE. Uh, What we saw in places like BC, far fewer homes ended up in outbreak and far fewer um, older people, even when you compare our different populations, died. In provinces like Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, where we actually significantly delayed our actions, even back during the first wave, we saw much higher death tolls. And again, not only residents who died, but staff who died in these settings. By the time we actually uh, hit our second wave, we knew that there was never a pandemic in the past that hasn't had a second wave. We actually knew that there were things we could have done to shore things up, things that we could have done during what I like to call our summer of opportunity. And sadly, what we're seeing now is that these deaths that are occurring, these homes that are an outbreak, we again have an 
an equal number of homes that are in outbreak today in outbreak during at, at the height of our first wave as well. Uh, and what we're really seeing is that a lot of inaction, a lot of half measures that were taken that sounded good politically, but really were ineffective on the front lines. And we all know this has really led to a lot more seniors who sadly lost their lives and families that are just left grieving going, how did we even let this happen in the first place? So as we heard earlier, I was at a protest at a tender care, long-term care home in Scarborough earlier this week. And I think what was so shocking there was to talk to families, particularly people telling me that there have been stories about individuals in these homes who are banging on walls, who are looking for food, who are thirsty, who are hungry. There's not enough staff to take care of them. At what point do we have to do something more drastic? Because it, it does appear, like you say, that these sort of half measures aren't really doing anything in terms of protecting our most vulnerable. Absolutely. And it and I find it really disingenuous when, you know, kind of our elected officials are saying, like, we've done everything possibly we could. Well, the answer is no, we haven't, actually. Um, there were lots of things that we should have done that we didn't do, that we didn't choose to do. Um, and there were things that, frankly, we know we could have, we like, it's it's never too late to start now, as opposed to just keep saying that everything's fine and, and things are stable and, and things are going to be better. When people are banging on the walls for food, that tells you that things aren't stable, things aren't good. And the sad part is, is that we're counting the number of people who died from COVID. We're not actually counting in the numbers right now, the people who died of loneliness, the people who died of starvation. And if you actually look at what's actually happened in our care homes where people have been isolated unnecessarily from family members and friends, where people have been dying from starvation, for example, that, you know, the death toll would be even higher. And frankly, we're actually also seeing the care that people are receiving has really changed. The, the prescriptions of antipsychotics, antidepressants have skyrocketed in these homes over the last year. And sadly, those numbers and those issues don't always make the headlines. But it was the military who frankly opened our eyes in May when those reports got released, just saying how much they saw staff working in a culture of fear, residents who weren't getting the care and the attention they needed. And remember, these are the most vulnerable people in our province. And if we can't actually meet their needs, then, then how do we expect that we're actually going to get good results? So we actually know what we need to be doing. There's a number of jurisdictions around the world who have not seen anywhere near the catastrophe that we've actually experienced in our long-term care homes. There are other jurisdictions across Canada that aren't seeing kind of the, the catastrophes that we're seeing. And so when we have people saying we're doing everything we can, that's that's not correct. And frankly, there are things that we could be doing but but we need to just do them. And I think you bring up a, a really important point is that we're focusing, of course, on the deaths that have taken place. But what I heard as well are stories of isolation and loneliness and depression. And you can only imagine the ripple effect that that has within these communities when families aren't able to get access to their loved ones. How important do you think it is that families are allowed into these long-term care facilities, and is that possible in a safe way? 
It is absolutely possible. And this is, again, one of those things where back in March, I think when we weren't sure how COVID was getting in, we thought that, well, these, you know, the residents aren't necessarily, you know, running out in the community. So it must be the staff, it must be the visitors who potentially could be uh, placing these residents at risk by bringing COVID into the homes. So I think back in in mid-March when we said, okay, lock these homes down, don't allow visitors and family members in. I think we all agreed that that probably was a safe thing to do at the time. But we quickly started seeing that that was taking an enormous toll, that from the emotional well-being of residents, this wasn't working well. And in fact, you know, the risk of dying from loneliness and starvation when when people are often going in every day to provide their loved ones support, uh, we realized that that was probably taking a greater toll than the risk of dying from COVID. And so by the summer, we were saying, look, you know, we're not actually allowing family members to be reunited when other jurisdictions, countries, for example, like the Netherlands, uh, provinces like Quebec had already welcomed caregivers back in. Uh, So uh, our National Institute on Aging, we worked with experts from across the country, family caregivers um, and uh, and resident councils to actually put guidance forward to the province to say, this is actually how we can actually allow people to visit their loved ones safely and for family caregivers to be reintegrated, that we could allow them to provide care and support. Literally, as simple, Amber, as just but treating them like staff, making sure that they have access to the same PPE that staff have, that they have access to infection prevention and control measures. Because we have not found a single shred of evidence yet that has said that, you know, family members um, are wanting to, uh, are causing any of these outbreaks, for example. If a family member has a sniffle, the last thing they want to do is come in and put their loved one at risk. The staff aren't in such a fortunate situation. There's a whole other complex story around them. But the key is that for family caregivers, you can reintegrate them. And I have to say that it took only, well, it took only three months, for example, we released our guidance in July, Ontario finally reissued their guidance of September, welcoming family members and caregivers back in. But what pains me is that we're still hearing stories um, at these homes that are in outbreak where the guidance says that you should allow a family caregiver to be able to come in even during an outbreak. And some homes are just simply saying, we're not allowing that to happen because we can't, we don't have the staff to permit it. We can't support it. And that only adds insult to injury when at the end of the day, when a home is in crisis, when there's not enough staff to feed, to bathe, to actually, you know, hydrate residents, you've got family members that are being unnecessarily locked out when they are those essential family caregivers that should be allowed in, especially in these times of crisis. Excuse me if I'm confused, but it appears to me that what's been taking place is that there are all of the experts in the province who have come forward and essentially agree on what should be done. And yet those recommendations are not followed. So in your opinion, where is the breakdown in terms of the lack of action? Well, this is the problem, right? What, what really pains me is just people say we've done everything we can. And frankly, it's it's a game of passing the buck. Uh, 
saying, well, you know what, the guidance from the ministry has been clear since September. You know, family members should be coming in um, and they should be allowed. And if it's not happening, it's the home's fault, for example. Well, who's enforcing this then, right? What we've actually seen is that no homes have lost their licenses. Um, no fines have been laid. When human rights are being violated, when it's very clear that the policy guidance now says that even during outbreak, a resident has the right, because the legislation for Ontario, Amber, says that residents have the right to receive visitors. The new policy or the revised policy guidance in September says that residents should even be allowed to have their essential family caregivers come in to meet their needs, even during an outbreak situation. But again, you know, the government says, well, you know, it's up to the homes to actually implement these policies. And if they're not doing that right, well, that's on them. Well, well, who's policing them? Who's making sure that these things are happening? Because frankly, at the end of the day, what's happening is residents are not having their rights to receive visitors respected. Family members are being shut out. And when family members complain, People just shrug their shoulders and say, well, we're working on it. It's stable. Don't worry about it. But they have the right to be worried because, again, we're seeing the death toll continue to mount. And not just from COVID-19 alone, but from all these side effects of the additional neglect um, and the harm. And the sad part about all this is, is that I think the fact that the government only a few months ago passed legislation that actually indemnified these homes, saying that only homes in cases of absolute gross negligence um, would actually face liability. They've actually raised the bar higher than ever before for these homes to actually be penalized through the judicial system, which has again taken another um, uh, a layer away of support and protection that family members might be able to use in other scenarios. So not only you know, have we locked these folks in these homes without access to their families, uh, but we've also honestly just continued to violate their rights and the rights of their families over and over again. And that's why when our National Institute on Aging recently did a survey of people across Ontario and across Canada, 70% of older adults have now said, and 60% of Canadians in general, that they would not want to go into a long-term care home now, and they wouldn't wish for a family member to go into a long-term care home. What we have to realize is that the public are aware of what's going on, and they've lost faith in the system, and frankly, I have too. What about the owners of some of these homes? I think we've all read the stories where, of course, there are some homes that are managing well, and then there are some of the for-profit homes that are having more severe issues. Can you talk a little bit about the ownership of these homes and, and maybe shine the spotlight on how profit uh, at the end of the day is, in, in pretty frank terms, leading to more deaths? It's it's a complicated picture because, again, you've got for-profit providers, you've got not-for-profit providers, you've got municipal providers of long-term care. And, and the basic way the system works is this is a publicly funded system, so just like our hospitals. But you have three different types of operator or ownership models that can occur in these settings. And really what the evidence has shown is that 
the homes that are actually having the bigger and more severe outbreaks tend to be those that are owned by for-profit um, uh, chains in particular. Uh, and we're seeing this less so in the case of municipal homes and not-for-profit homes. And there are a number of different factors. Uh, a lot of the for-profit homes and chains, uh, they tend to own a lot older homes, homes that are in desperate need of redevelopment. And it's not clear why these homes haven't been redeveloped for a number of years. There's 30,000 beds that are in need of redevelopment. And these are homes that only meet the 1972 standards, which can allow four people to be packed into a room sharing one bathroom. That's an absolute recipe for disaster. So absolutely, we're seeing deadlier outcomes in these for-profit homes that are largely represented by these older, outdated facilities that have that the government itself um, and that these, these chains have failed to redevelop. And everybody's saying it's um, they're not sure why that's happened. It's not right, quite clear. Uh, that doesn't add up for me, frankly. But what we are seeing is that the fundamental issue, I think, is that we grossly underfund our long-term care system to begin with. So remember that Canada is, a, is an underspender. Ontario underspends by far, because right now, even Ontario's own staffing commission said that for residents currently in Ontario long-term care homes to be receiving an adequate amount of care, each of them should be receiving at least four hours of care a day on average. Currently in Ontario, it's 2.7 hours. So we're currently not even funding any of these homes, whether they be for-profit, not-for-profit, or municipally owned, to even provide the basic amount of care that our own Ontario government's expert panel says that people should be receiving. And finally, what we're actually seeing as a result is that the not-for-profit and, and municipal homes tend to do better as performance because, frankly, they fundraise, like they hold bake sales, they use their municipal tax bases to actually supplement the amount of care that's being provided because they recognize that the amount of money they're getting from the Ontario government isn't sufficient to provide the basic care that these residents need. And, and this is really what the heart of it is, is that we've grossly underspent. So it was great that the Ontario government announced a few weeks ago that, yes, we are going to meet the four-hour-a-day um, mandate. We are going to spend up to $1.9 billion more a year in providing care. But if you read the fine print, they said, well, it's going to take time to hire people and extra staff. And therefore, we only anticipate that we're going to boost the amount of care from 2.45 hours, um, two hours and 45 minutes to three hours by 2022 in time for the next election, by the way. Um, we won't be able to reach that, reach that four hour standard until 2024, 2025. Most of the people in these care homes will be dead by then. And right now, that's not correct. We could actually start hiring a lot more people right now, just as Quebec hired 10,000 new people um, over the summer uh, in time to meet its second wave. And what is Quebec seeing as a result? far fewer homes, a third the number of homes in Quebec right now in outbreak that we are in Ontario. We actually have the solutions in front of us. In front of us. The question is, why aren't we actually doing the things that we need to be doing now to stabilize the system? And somehow it's almost that, you know, dead seniors are just the cost of doing business and frankly, good fiscal government. It is devastating in so many ways. And my last question for you is really thinking about 
the people out there who do care. And I think both of us have heard from many of them across social media who want to do something, who want to raise awareness, who want to bring attention to what's taking place. If our politicians in this province aren't going to act and actually do something, what can the average person out there who's hearing about this do to help in some way? You know, raise your voice. Um, you, it, you know, you know, the, the number one job of a politician, whether it's the Minister of Health, the Premier, or the Minister of Long-Term Care, the number one job I was taught years ago, their focus is to get reelected. That's what they want to do. And if voters basically say that, you know what, enough is enough with long-term care, this this has gone too far, um, people will listen. People will find this. And the fact of the matter is, we grossly, un- we, we as a society decide to exclude the provision of long-term care from our Canada Health Act and, and from what we call Medicare back in 1966 when we created our universal health care system. We have all elected successive governments that have neglected this area of care. If you're mad and you're angry and you're listening and saying what I can do, it's tell your elected officials enough is enough. Because frankly, if the voters care about this issue, then the politicians care about this issue. But, you know, when there's a protest, join the protest. When there's an opportunity to speak up, speak up. Because frankly, the sad part at the end of the day is the frontline workers who are doing a heroic job and have been so poorly treated in this entire affair tend to be women, tend to be new Canadians. They tend to be racialized. They don't get the voice that many of us actually have the platform to give. A number of these residents living in these care homes The majority of them have dementia. The majority of them can't speak up for themselves. But the majority of them, you know, are family members, they're they're their loved ones. You know, they they have, you know, these are people who built our society and made contributions. And frankly, if that if none of what I said has appealed to anybody listening so far, remember that all of us are likely going to age. All of us are likely going to need some form of long-term care. And if this gives you a window to your future where you could be one of the 2,700 who died, you could be one of the family members who's agonizing, um, uh, you know, about, you know, a, 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 you know, a life that was lost so unfairly, um, then remember that one day this could be you in that situation. And if you wouldn't wish these outcomes on, on, on anyone else, then don't wish them on yourselves and be a part of the change that we desperately need. We needed years ago, and maybe we can finally achieve in 2021. That's all for today's episode of The Amber Max Show. This is an ongoing tragedy that requires leaders, and most importantly, leadership, from government, business, and healthcare to immediately take action to keep our most vulnerable safe. This episode is dedicated to the thousands of family members in this province and across the country who have lost a mom or dad, a sister or brother, a grandma or grandpa, an aunt or an uncle in long-term care during COVID-19. Enough is enough. Thanks for listening.